the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing Warrant Officer Rayleigh Scott, AM. Warrant Officer Rayleigh Scott joined the Royal Australian Air Force as a switchboard operator in 1986 and then remustered to an electronic data processor operator. She later became a communications information systems controller. In 1996, she was posted to the RAAF Network Operations Agency, where she was a founding member of the implementation team installing what became the Defence Restricted Network and the Defence Switched Network around Australia. Rayleigh also had postings to Defence Support Group, where she worked on the Strategic Communications Network and worked as a system administrator at Williamtown, Wagga Wagga and Townsville, along with several expeditionary roles with deployable networks. In 2008, she was posted to Headquarters Joint Operations Command, where she worked for several years as the team leader for Multinational Communications Interoperability Program, which focused on humanitarian assistance disaster relief with Pacific nations. In 2012, Rayleigh was posted to number 1 Combat Communications Squadron Amberley Flight, and in 2015 she took up the position of Squadron Warrant Officer. Most recently, she was posted to Air Force Headquarters Cyber Warfare and Networks, where she was the Mustering Capability Advisor. In 2019... She was appointed Wing Warrant Officer 44 Wing at RAAF Base Williamtown, followed by Force Element Group Warrant Officer Air Mobility Group. During her career, Rayleigh's deployments have included Operations Relex 2001, Operation Falconer 2003, Operation Catalyst 2005, Operation Slipper 2010 and 11. Operation Southern Indian Ocean 2014, Operation Okra 2014 and Operation Accordion in 2017. Rayleigh was admitted as a member, AM, in the Military Division of the Order of Australia in the Australia Day 2022 Honours List. In addition, she has received an ADF Gold Commendation, an Air Force Silver Commendation, an ADF Bronze Commendation and a Meritorious Unit Citation. In 2022, Rayleigh assumed the role of Air Command Warrant Officer and Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Air Commander Australia. Rayleigh enjoys the challenges, innovation and new perspective that prevails in transforming the RAAF into a technologically advanced fifth generation Air Force. Well, a very good morning to you, Warrant Officer Rayleigh Scott AM. It's nice to have your company. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, why did you join the Air Force? What was your motivation? Oh, that's an interesting question. I suppose 
Being in defence hasn't really run in my family. There's, I don't have anybody that's been in the Air Force or any of the services. Uh, so for me, it was probably a little bit different. But um, I will say where I lived in Perth, um, there used to be this Air Force bus that would drive around and pick everybody up and take them out to RAF Base Pierce for their work. And I thought, that looks pretty good and that is something I want to do. So when I left school, I didn't join immediately. I worked for a couple of years uh, and then I joined up after that in 1986. Um, but that was my motivation and um, I've never looked back. That's fascinating, Rally. I've heard a lot of people say they've seen planes flying overhead, but never a RAF base going, a bus going was I actually got posted back to Perth as my first posting and um, lived back with my parents and I actually got on that bus so I don't provide the bus to work anymore but I at least got on it for a few years. Oh, that's fascinating. It's a good you join the raft, become a bus driver. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you actually, you, as you said in 1986, you joined as a switchboard operator. How did that work? What was that process and why that particular role? Yeah, I remember going into recruiting at the time and that was one of the jobs that they offered me and I thought um, I'd been working outside doing reception work for a couple of years and did some training in that area. So I thought, yeah, that appeals to me. Um, and that's what I went with. I mean, I talk to people about it today. Right. I was pretty good in those days, but it's interesting for people these days to understand you couldn't just pick up a phone and make a phone call. The switchboard you were operating, was it one of those switchboards where you pick up the line and plug it into another line? Is that what, what happened? I mean, tell me what the switchboard was like. Yeah, so that's what people think. Um, so we actually did training at the School of Radio, which was at Laverton back in the day. Um, and then once you graduate from there, they teach you that once you get to the location you're at but it was electronic it was an electronic switchboard so um, the only thing that wasn't electronic I mean we didn't have computers then so uh, we used to have like a a manually typed list of phone numbers so we knew who to put people through to. So when you actually went to sign up, to join up, was there a list of options of where you'd like to end up or how did you get where you got to start with? So they didn't really give me a list of where you could go. They gave me a few options to choose from when I joined and I think one was a cook as well and the other was switchboard operator and I was actually interested in the cook side of it as well well, but uh, there wasn't as many vacancies and it was going to take a bit longer. So I, I selected the switchboard operator. And then from there, after initial training at the School of Radio at Laverton, we all got offered our postings and they said, you know, when you put in your first preference, you'll never get your first preference. So um, I put in Perth thinking, uh, you know, I want to go home one day. Um, and then I got Perth as my first preference. I thought, oh, I didn't really want to go home that quick. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what was training like? I mean, was it specific to being a switchboard operator or was it general duties training? Tell, tell me about okay. training. Yeah, it was definitely about being a switchboard operator. Um, and a lot of it was to do with the emergency procedures. So if anything was to happen on base, the first point of call was the switchboard operator and then you would coordinate all the emergency services, um, including things like pans and all that, you know, getting fireys and, you know, making those calls to them to get them out to different um, areas. So a lot of it was about that. Um, and just, you know, how they wanted us to answer the phone and just professionalism in that in that regard. It was only a two-week course, so it wasn't long. Okay. A lot of it and, was on the job. 
And is the switchboard operator, uh, is it a national switchboard or does each state have its own, did it own, have its own switchboard operator? Yeah, in those days each uh, base had their own. Each base? Yes, and it was 24-7, so we did shift work as well. What's the most difficult call you ever, you ever took in your initial days as a switchboard operator? Um, so somebody, it was my first night shift by myself, and somebody rang up and said, there's uh, a fire in the snake's pit. <laughs> I had no idea what a snake's pit was, and I remember ringing the fiery saying, there's a fire in the snake pit, and I hope you know where that is. And obviously it was a sergeant's mess, but uh, I was a bit young and innocent in those days. <laughs> Uh, luckily, they knew what I was talking about, so uh, everything was okay, but yeah. And the movement from that role into electronic data processor, what what is that and how did that move occur? Yeah, so when I joined, um, I signed for six years, which was the minimum at that stage you could join for. And I thought, oh, after being a switchboard operator... You know, the job wasn't complex. I really enjoyed it, but I thought I just think I need to do something else. So I put in for a remaster to um, electronic data processor and got it and I got direct entry. So I didn't need to go back to the school of radio and do a basic course. I just went. So I went virtually from the switchboard at Pierce into EDP at Pierce, got a posting straight in there. And EDP operators uh, did all the data processing. So we used to put in uh, into a computer, we used to put in everybody's pay, personal particulars. Uh, we ran the CAM2 or CAM system in those days and we did backups. We ran a logistics system, computer system as well and did the backups for that as well. So, um, you know, we used to do all the data processing for all of that type of stuff. What year would that have been? That would have been 19, probably mid-1987. At that stage, no doubt the computer system that you would have been using would have been ginormous. Yeah, they were. We used to have these big platters, like eight deep of these platters, and you'd put them in these big, like, washing machine tubs to do your oh. backups on. <laughs> how, <heavy. laughs> how things have changed. I know. Your fascination for the, I mean, a switchboard operator, data processor operator, it's all, to use today's parlance, it's all computer orientated. Where did yep. that interest come? I mean, did you have a, a mathematical background at school? I mean, why um, that? Not at all. And I actually left school at year 10. So, um, and that's where I sort of went out and worked for a couple of years in industry. But um, I definitely wouldn't say I had a mathematical background. I just had an interest in it. I loved it. Um, you know, I was able to already touch type at the time, so that was part of it, was being mm. able to, you know, in those days you had to be able to touch type and type it at a certain speed as well to get through, so. I've always admired somebody who's a fast typer. I'm, I still <laughs> I still use these two. I still use two fingers, but anyway, that's me. People do uh, get a bit put off when I, they'll come into my office and I'll just keep typing but looking at them and they're going, how do you do that? Yeah, well, how do you do that, Hexy? <laughs> how do you? No, don't answer that question. Then the third step was communication information systems controller. That's a mouthful. What is that? Yeah, so uh, short term, that's Syscon. So what happened was um, they amalgamated some musterings, um, you know, which we still do a bit of, well, we still do that today. So um, we amalgamated communications communications operators and they were the ones that used to do all the mercury messaging. What is mercury messaging? So mercury messaging, in, and we still use messaging today, probably not as much because we have email, but if you want to guarantee a 
a classified message can get from point A to point B, this system will do that. Navy still use it um, very highly. Air Force doesn't use it as much. So messages, you you used to go to the communications centre and you'd have a message that you needed to be sent from point A point A to point B, yep. you could guarantee it was getting there and um, it would have a certain classification on it. So they used to type in those. All our postings used to come out on those as well um, in those days. So all those type of things. So they amalgamated the communications operators with the EDP operators and that's when we became Ciscons. Given that you started in 86, pre-laptops, pre-mobile phones, etc. now it's 2022, you must look back and amaze at the development of technology and how important it is within the Defence Force. Yeah, I definitely do. And probably the biggest thing for me is, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, you know, we're able to go out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Showwater Bay and set up an IT network. Like the younger ones today probably just think that that's normal. But for me, when I see that, I just think it's amazing. Yeah. The beauty of history and the beauty of being able to have been part of that history. The Communications Information Systems Controller, what year was that again? Still the 80s? Yes, it was, yeah. Okay. So what happened between that and 1996 when you were the founding member of the Defence Restricted Network? So what, what occurred between those years? So obviously I had a few postings between those years. I was up at Tyndall for four years. Um, I absolutely loved it. It was such a great posting. It was all very brand new in those days, brand new based. So, um, you know, great facilities, accommodation. Uh, And then I went and worked at Russell offices for a little bit. um, And I worked on the network there. We used to run a network for the chief's office and a few people at Russell offices. It was just an Air Force uh, network. And then from there, I got uh, put into the team that did the uh, RAFNET implementation. And that was open to any musterings could do that. I was just fortunate enough to get on that team where we installed that. Were there many of your type? Was it a big group of people or were you a very small select group of people? Yeah, no, we were a pretty big group. Um, You know, we were still doing, even though we'd become discons, we were still doing exactly the same jobs and I suppose we went from a little bit the technology changed we started to get a few standalone networks in our areas Um, even the backups changed from those big platter discs to tape you know so there was progress with technology still still going through all right 1996 you're the founding or a founding member of Defence Restricted Network and Defence Switched Network. I've never come across these terms in all the interviews I've done with the Royal Australian Air Force. So tell me what that is. So what happened is we had a really smart team in Melbourne and I definitely didn't design this. There was other people that did it, but we had a team put together that went out to start networking all our bases, which was a little bit controversial because uh, a lot of the bases had a lot of their own little networks running all over the place. People didn't want this big network that was going to link everybody up because it sort of meant that a few people managing those networks were probably going to have to find different jobs. It probably wasn't as popular as we wanted 
wanted when we were installing it at bases, um, but definitely by the end of that project. And it probably took us nine months to get around Australia to install that. What kinds of teething problems would there have been, if any? Interesting enough, we didn't get any training before we did it. So the team we had, it was just our own skills that we had that was installing these networks. I must say, once we finished the project, they had some extra money left, so they got us all some training. But um, (laughs) we were doing a lot of reading books and uh, things like that when we did the install. Um, And it was a great team. We had a a great time. The project was limited with money. We had to drive around Australia to install this stuff. So probably why it took us a bit longer than we were. So was it hardware installing or software? So we would install the hardware and the software as well. And then we would give, before we would leave each site, we'd give training to the local staff that were going to be running that network. But just out of interest, what sort of hardware are we talking about? So they were big IBM servers. The old CRT monitors and big desktops, like everything was big in those days. Yeah, of course. Uh, what was the connection between that unit in Tyndall when you set it up and Holsworthy, for argument's sake? Was it a wired network? Was it using Telstra? What were you doing? Yeah, so there'd been a project called Rodnet that went through probably the year before. that, And we only did Air Force at this stage. Um, it was just an Air Force network. And Rodnet was the project that did all the cabling in the ground at every rough So that set it up ready for us to then take all the hardware and plug that in. Okay, so all of the Air Force bases were connected by cable. Yes. You effectively did in the 90s more efficiently what another large telecommunication company has tried to do in the 21st century. That's right. Some of those bases probably haven't even, I know a lot of them are getting upgrades to that cabling now, but it's taken a long time and they've been using those same pipes for a long time. So obviously did its job back in the day and was, you know, futuristic enough to continue through. It's quite amazing. Let's listening to this story. What are strategic communication networks? What are they? Yeah, so what happened once we did this install for Air Force and it was called RAFNET, um, we then progressed and the other services saw what this could be and we then progressed to, uh, you know, the defence uh, restricted network. So then it became a defence network. Army and Navy got it installed on their bases as well. So that's how it became strategic because it was all three services and it's what we all use today as well. So you can all communicate now with each other efficiently via this kind of network? Yeah, it's the same network everywhere. And when we deploy, um, we take a deployable version of it as well. So it's exactly the same. So how would you rate the importance of communication, this kind of communication within the ADF? Sometimes I think we've created a nightmare because now we all have so much email and it's hard to keep up with that. But, you know, and during COVID, we went a lot of steps forward even further with virtual, um, you know, using more virtual communications that are available on that network. So we've progressed even further. Mm. Um, you know, saving people having to travel all the time um, and things like that. We can do a lot more virtually. So, you know, over the years, it has got better and better and better. And it just means everybody's on the same system. You can find anybody you need um, and contact them via that system. 
my silly brain thinks, all right, starts with the Air Force, all connected by by cable, and then you engage with the F, the uh, Navy and the Army. At what point does this go beyond and become multinational? We can email through multinational, so we have gateways that let us communicate with them through those systems, both on uh, restricted and secret as well. So we definitely have those connections through to those systems. When we deploy, it's probably, and it's exactly the same, we can still communicate through emails and to the other um, nations as well. So we do have gateways that allow that to happen. So then that was sort of like another progression that happened. So those multinational groups, are, are we more inclined to have the same kind of connection with specific countries, uh, like, for example, the United States of America, the United Kingdom, or is it truly multinational? It's everybody. Which is it? I would say it's truly multinational. Like, we we can get out and email anybody. Um, the secret system's probably a little bit more restrictive as to who you can get out to and who you can receive from. You know, when we do exercises, we can go to an unclassed system as well where we're still able to communicate and all use the same system. So they still have a lot of advancement where they account for a coalition, especially when we do HADR and you need to communicate with them. Sometimes you'll have a particular website that people can communicate that's just unclassified and you can share information through. So um, there's definitely a lot of avenues there. Okay. So what about with an operation like, for argument's sake, Operation Talisman, where we're operating with others, but mainly the United States of America and all three defences? What role does your area play in that kind of operation? Yeah, so um, what happens is, especially for Tel Sabre, is we can restrict... Uh, if we have coalition that need to log on to our systems, we can restrict their accounts as to uh, to let them on and onto the secret system. It just takes a lot of process to do that. There's a lot behind it and it can take probably a month to get all that approved because it goes through the embassies to verify people's clearances and all that sort of stuff. And it's the same when we are logging onto their systems. So we definitely have those type of systems in place. You've got to tell me then more specifically, because these terms really <laughs> get my head around as difficulty. What is the multinational communications interoperability program? I mean, it's hard even to say. What is it? I know. So the acronym is MSIP, which is a little bit easier. Uh, what's MSIP? <laughs> yeah. So when I was at headquarters jock, I worked in the communications plans area. And PACOM, so the US that work out of uh, Hawaii that look after the Pacific nations um, have a working group and it was specific to communications and all the Pacific nations were involved in that working group and we used to get together about four times a year and a different nation would host the event as well. And during that, we would talk about how we would communicate together. And the big thing when I was in the job was looking at the radios that Australia use, the US use and those Pacific nations and working out if our radios were going to be able to talk to each other. And mm. we mainly used to have the scenario around a humanitarian assistant type of scenario where we would all go in to help each other 
but to make sure that the Philippines radio, whatever variant they were using, was going to work with our radio. And then every two years they would have an exercise where we would all take the radios along and practice to see if they were actually going to work together. Sure. This is going to sound like an idiot question, but let me ask it because my background is radio. When we were looking to introduce digital radio, DAB+, into the commercial radio network of Australia, there were certain frequencies that may have caused a problem because the military, now, I don't know whether it was Australian or American, but the military were using certain frequencies and you couldn't use that. Are you familiar with that kind of problem? Yeah, so we do have particular frequencies that are issued to defence. And during this exercise, that was another bit that we used to practice as well. So depending on the nation you're going to, uh, you can't just lob into a particular Pacific Island or nation and just turn on your comms equipment. You've got to get approval. And they'll have people within defence that give that approval. And our defence has that same lot of people that approve frequencies to be used. Fascinating. Uh, Has your background in that area been of assistance in any way, shape or form as your role, a very important role too, I hasten to add, of warrant officer? Yep. Um, So, yeah, it was quite interesting. Uh, I used to run... When we had those working groups, we'd break off into different areas and I used to be the chair for some of those. Um, and I suppose it was a bit of a challenge being with Pacific Nations and when when you're sitting there with a boardroom of officers from other countries that aren't used to having a female run that working group, I probably found that a bit of a challenge initially. And especially like at the time, my background definitely wasn't radios. I'd been more on the IT side. So it was a big learning curve for me but such a great challenge that I absolutely loved. It was one of the best jobs I think I've had in Air Force. You've mentioned the Pacific Nations uh, a number of times. Uh, what was your role in, in your background and your skill set with disaster relief with those Pacific Nations and what kinds of things can you remember? Yeah, so we used to talk about things like cyclones or, you know, what we would do or what communication means we would have to share information rather than every country lobbing into an area that needs disaster relief and all bringing the same thing or trying to do the same thing, whereas it might need one or two people to do something a little bit different or there's no use 20 people showing up to all do the same thing. So we tried to collaborate and work out how we would do that and it gave you really good connections in those countries so if something did happen you were able to contact that person and say what is it you need from us a meteorologist his job is to predict weather you've talked about the disaster relief and you mentioned hurricanes is there any connection between what your skill set people do and predicting potential weather events or is it a separate area or is there no area that's involved in that I would say that's a separate area. They have people at Headquarters Joint Operations Command, uh, like on the watch floor, that do look at weather in certain areas and they brief that to the commander there uh, to see jobs. So they are aware that maybe something could be coming up. So definitely at Headquarters Joint Ops, they definitely look at things like that as to what might be coming up. So is it then your job then to communicate that information? So no, it wouldn't have been my job, but once something happens, and it's up to the government as well whether, you know, we provide support. So we have to wait for that as well before we can start planning as to what we're actually going to do. 
You've been involved in a lot of operations or a lot of deployments, uh, Middle East deployments and operations like Relics, Falconer, Catalyst, etc. Pick one or two and tell me what was your role in that particular operation. Is that possible? Yeah, definitely. Op Relics was probably the first one I was involved in and we actually uh, worked out of Learmont for that one. So I was part of a communications team that were put forward. Uh, we went to Learmont. We were told we're probably going to be there for three weeks. Three months later, we were still there. I do remember it quite well because at the time when we were there, September 11th happened as well. So it was really a busy time for us. Yeah, I can um, imagine. That base was used as a bit of a um, board operating base from there. So um, whilst we were there for Op Relics, other things were going on in the background. Yeah, better tell the geographically idiot like me where is that base so Learmont is just uh, north of Exmouth so uh, the main town that supports the people that are based there is Exmouth so okay, in right. WA uh, yep. right up the top there beautiful beautiful country so you were there for three months and obviously be- 9-11, that, that must have been, you're now in the Defence Force, you, you're part of an Air Force, an armed unit in Australia, that must have been, oh, what is our role likely to be? Did that ever cross your minds? Because it's one of our remote locality bases, it, you know, it was really confusing as to what was happening and what we were going to need to be a part of, because we were so remote from our headquarters and things like that, it was probably a little bit of unknown. And we sort of, whilst everybody in the world was watching that on TV, we were as well. But uh, we sort of just went on with the op that we were currently supporting, which was P3s. So the aircraft that come out of Edinburgh were working out of there and we just kept doing that. Well, three years after that operation, you were involved in Operation Falconer. Yep. So initially, uh, I went on the first push that went into the UAE and we set up the communications at the base we were at. So first in there to set that up, uh, it was an amazing experience. And probably my favourite thing is setting up comms. Once you've got it set up, it's just sort of, you know, managing it. So I found uh, setting it up, you know, you're always going to get issues and problems and Mm. you just get to do a lot of problem solving. And it was a great experience to be the first in to do that as well. Yeah, someone listening to you right now, I want to emphasise the fact that uh, all these operations where defence people are involved in in hot areas, we tend to forget you go in and you're setting up the communications because without that communications, then that operation is ineffective. Yeah, that's right. People rely on it and they rely on not just the communications, but in my job, we also provide the crypto people, you know, they need to communicate through secure means. So without that, um, even without that side, you know, a lot of the comms does not work. We start in 2001 as far as your operations overseas or in Australia and overseas. Relics is first and the last one is Operation Accordion in 2017. How did your job requirements change across those 15 or so years? Yeah, a really big change. Um, The first time I went to the Middle East, um, I was a flight sergeant. um, And that last time I went, I was a warrant officer and slowly progressed through different jobs as well. So the first one, you know, I was setting up comms, helping people uh, with help desk issues and managing the staff. And that last deployment I did, I was the information systems engineer. So by that stage, we'd gone to a joint comms concept. 
So we had Army and Navy working with us. So the information system engineer is like the top geek job in the Middle East and everybody's reporting to you. You're trying to fix problems. And then obviously my reporting chain at that stage was to the J6 who was the OSC of communications. And again, the technology between 2001 and 2017, the changes are monumental. Yeah, we went through a big change and um, big refurbs within the Middle East of all the sites that we had and just bigger upgrades, better computers. We went virtually nearly to like monitors on desks rather than just laptops. We also, you know, changed a lot of the infrastructure. We had big server rooms that were wasn't, you know, just a deployable system anymore. And in uh, 2022, as it is right now, the little thing that I'm holding in my hand called it a, a smartphone, compared to where you started with the switchboard, there's been monumental changes. Definitely, like such a big change. What were you awarded the Australia Medal for, the AM? So I was awarded that uh, this year on Australia Day. Such a great day for me. I was awarded that for work that I did at 44 Wing. So 44 Wing look after all the air traffic control around Australia. And I was awarded that for some cultural changes and uh, leadership there. Um, And the other part was for work that I did at one combat communications squadron. So I was there as the squadron warrant officer and just the work I did uh, with implementing uh, new systems and culture as well there. Now you're uh, Air Command Warrant Officer and you're advisor to uh, Air Commander Australia. That is a big job. Congratulations. Thank you. It's probably more than I thought it was going to be. So I started off the year with ABM Abasi as the Air Commander and then they changed, uh, the Air Commander changed out in April to ABM Goldie. And we've been working together this year and it's it's been full on and probably more than I thought it was going to be. Obviously we try to get out to base to talk to everybody because we have a lot of people um, out on those bases and we've done a pretty good job of that this year. The boss's um, number one was getting out talking to people, uh, which we both love. Yeah, silly question. Does the air commander ever say, look, I've got a problem with my phone. I can't get this particular setting or this app working. Can you help me? Does that ever happen? <laughs> I think the whole office do. <laughs> they always go, oh, it's great having you in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the next time I change my television changer, I might get you to come and visit me. <laughs> look, this is an aspect. I, I've spoken to a couple of people that are, have amazed me. Uh, I've never considered in my head the role of the military police in the Royal Australian Air Force, and I had an interview recently about that, and it was just fascinating. And this area, when you think about it, communications is the heart of all of our defence forces. You you are involved in one of the most, if not the most important aspect of all of our defence. Yeah, and that's really interesting because I think previous to this job, I was the Fed Warrant Officer at Air Mobility Group who do all the heavy lift for Air Force. And they always say that they are first in because generally they will be delivering troops or delivering equipment. Along with Air Mobility Group, there's always a communicator who's getting off first to start setting up communications. Mm. Because obviously, once you drop people on the ground, they need to be able to communicate back to Australia to say what's going on. Well, air mobility may be the arteries, but communication is the heart, in my opinion. So that's <laughs> that's awesome. Just a silly question. You're in the Air Force. You've been there since 1986. Have you ever had a passion and desire to fly? Uh, no, and funny story is I probably get a little bit motion sickness. So recently this year I was up at uh, 
Horn Island. We did a visit up there and took some ex-Olympians along with us to do some basketball camps up there with the community. And we took some of the community in a C-27J in a Spartan for a scenic flight around their islands and had the back ramp open as well. Um, And we were flying low so they could get a good view, but... It was not good. It was bumpy as anything, and uh, I was not feeling well at all. So <laughs> I just wanted the pilot to land. In retrospect, you'd stick with the RAAF bus. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another silly question, uh, Warrant Officer, I've got to ask, how did you get the nickname Pixie? Oh, so people ask me that, and I've had it for so long. I got that when I was at Tyndall. And they think I'm like the fairy type pixie and I always say I'm not that type of pixie and I definitely don't have any pixie dust that I can sprinkle and make miracles happen. Um, There used to be a TV show back in the day called Fast Forward. Yep. Which I'm sure they couldn't replay these days because I'm sure it would be totally inappropriate. But uh, Yes, I remember it. <laughs> yeah. There was a character on there called Pixie Ann Wheatley and uh, she had like this permed hair, which I had permed hair in those days, and a laugh um, that was pretty individual and I got it from that. Okay. So it just well, as stuck. far as you not having pixie dust, I would dispute that and say <laughs> your pixie dust is making communications work efficiently. So, yes, you do. Appropriately named. (laughs) I've just got to say a big, big thank you for your the longevity you've had with the Royal Australian Air Force in, and I'll repeat it, in what I think is the heart of the Australian Defence Force and particularly the Royal Australian Air Force, and that is communication. So, Warrant Officer Rayleigh Scott Pixie, AM, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. And somebody asked me the other day, would I do anything differently? And I definitely wouldn't. I've loved every single day that I've had in my 36 years in the Air Force and I wouldn't change it for the world. Congratulations, Pixie. Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.